Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Hey, the internet is full of fun facts. Um, Some of them are not true. Uh, You can find all kinds of stuff on the internet. Um, You shouldn't believe all of it. Uh, I, I'm going to give you a couple, uh, just a few pictures of things that have gone around that have sparked people's attention, that have gone viral, that people are like, no way, I can't believe this. Well, you shouldn't, okay? Um, here's, a, here's a picture. This was, I don't know if you can see it. This came out, this is called Wave. Um, with the newest update of the iPhone, people started saying, this is awesome. All you got to do is put your iPhone in the microwave for a minute and a half and it'll charge. That's pretty awesome. I'm pretty mean. Uh, You are. That's not cool. All right, what's the next one? Uh, You guys have seen this one. Bill Gates is giving away free money. Right? He's got a lot of money, and of course, he would just kind of give it away to strangers. Just sign up. He'll give it to you. That'd be awesome. And people I know and love are like, you know, what the heck? I'll I'll sign that and try it, and if it, no loss. Um, But it's probably not coming your way. Okay. You guys see this picture? Um, it went around for a while with the, like, the subtitle, um, and you think you had a bad day at work. <laughs> Except uh, this was actually before Photoshop became like a common term, and those are two different settings, two different places, and cool picture, but not real. Here's another deal. Um, another iPhone, people preying on iPhone people. This one said, uh, with the release of iOS 7, your iPhone has become waterproof. So go ahead and throw it in the toilet. No worries. Okay. Um, then you have two problems. Um, one of them being an iPhone that doesn't work anymore. Here's, here's this one. Friends is coming back for another season. Anybody excited about that? No. So you'll, be, <laughs> you'll actually be happy to know completely not true. Anybody excited about that? Good. All right, good. Um, Oh, I love this one. Here's a couple more, maybe. This went around interviewing, like, kids on college campuses, and they would go around saying, do you recognize that there is a lot of dihydrogen monoxide in your water? They're like, no, what is that? Uh, It's really common, but it's a problem. And we're trying, we're wondering if you would sign a petition to say, we need to get rid of dihydrogen monoxide. And kids are like, yeah, I... Yeah, I want to get rid of that. If you say it's dangerous, only when you write it out, you know what it looks like? H2O. So dihydrogen monoxide is water. You try and get that out of your water, you have nothing. Okay? Um, You guys want one that's not, uh, that's gross? Okay, I'm going to give it to you anyway, because I liked it. I found this one. You can order man beef, which is... Human meat. Somebody actually bought a website named manbeef.com. Like, who says, yeah, that sounds interesting. There's a select. I went to it this morning. You can buy the domain if you want. It's no longer active, but whatever. Uh, Bad joke. All this to say, there's a lot of stuff out there that we shouldn't believe, right? Some of it's hilarious. Some of it's just downright stupid. 
some of it's dangerous. And we need to be careful with what we allow to uh, kind of pass through the filter of our brains and that we would start to live out and share with other people. It's very important because if we just go around starting to spread misinformation, again, sometimes it's just silliness. Sometimes it's stupid. Sometimes it's dangerous. As a jerk in college, I think I've told you that before. Um, but, you know, like I, I enjoyed making people feel dumb. Not, I would never say it like that, but I was sarcastic. And so, like, I got friends with the, hey, did you know gullible's not in the dictionary? I'm like, no way. I'm, yeah, it is. <laughs> that's awesome. You look so dumb. Like, that's just misinformation that's silly. Some of it, though, is dangerous. Well, we're in Radiant. It's a series through 1 John, and 1 John is all about a pastor who's addressing his church with issues going on. There's conflict in the church, and he can't sit idly by and just say, you know, it'll all pan out. He has to speak into their lives to say, you need someone to be able to tell you this is not okay. So in John's day and in John's church, and we're going to get into it today, we're going to see it lived out in his church today. In John's church, there's a group of people that came to be known as the Gnostics that were all about knowledge, and they had this secret knowledge, and they believed that you could acquire this secret knowledge and get really, really, really super spiritual. And some of them believed that you could live however you want because if you had this knowledge, you were spiritual and the rest didn't matter. And some of them believe that the body is just downright evil and you, had to, you couldn't experience pleasure in life because all pleasure was evil. Um, neither of those poles are true. And John wants to speak into them to say, I want my church to be about right thinking and right living. I don't want you to, be, I don't want you to have a mindless faith. I want you to have an informed intellectual faith, but I don't want you to just live cerebrally. That's not even a word. Help me out with that. In your head. I'm not smart. Okay? I don't want you to just live in your head. I want it to translate into your life, down through your heart and out through your life. And that's the kind of church that John wants. This says, I want right thinking and I want right living. And so he's addressing stuff in his church. And we're going to see that play out this morning. So uh, as we go uh, through 1 John, we have made it all the way now uh, to 1 John 4. And we're going to read 1 John 4, uh, 1 through 6 today. I'm going to uh, pull over the dry erase board and do some doodling for you uh, as well. That'll be fun. Well, let's read uh, 1 John 4. 1 through 6. John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, and whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. 
Let's pray because I think John is saying a lot, and I want us to be able to. I want us to be able to clamp onto it. Father, may we hear you this morning. May we hear you in truth that translates into our life. Would you help us to grab on this morning, to humble ourselves, to learn from you uh, as we open up your word. Um, Give us insight uh, that we can apply to our life now. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So again, uh, let me drag this over while I'm talking. The main idea of 1 John is life. He talks all over the place about how I want you to have life. And Jesus came, he is the life, and he brings the life. So you don't have to look anywhere else. In fact, if you look anywhere else, you will miss out on this. If you want life, John says, you go to Jesus. If you want life, you go to Jesus. We could almost stop here, right there, this morning, and say that would be enough. If we could just apply that to our life, if we could just say, Jesus, I'm all in. I'm going at you. Life follows after that. And John says, I, I, want, I want to talk to you about life. And he uses these two metaphors of um, light and darkness, that Jesus brings light and shines it in dark places so people can't hide anymore, and truth is illuminated, and people are, uh, secrets are found out, and they're brought into fellowship. Like, there's no more loneliness. There's no more just hiding by yourself in a corner and feeling like you're separate from everybody else. And if they just knew, they would, they would kick you to the curb. John says, I want light, and I want you to be known. And there is an invitation in Jesus to be known, and that light leads to life. And then John also talks about love. He talks about life and light and uh, life and love. And he says, when you have experienced the love of God through Jesus Christ, that fills you up, and you start to give that to others. And he says, I want I want you to be tested in the way that you think, and I want you to be tested in the way that you live. So if you have wrong theology, that, that is not going to lead to life. It's just not going to work. And if you have the right theology but a crusty lifestyle, if your theology makes you such that you push other people away because you, have, you are so lofty spiritually, John says, like, you're a liar, You are not living the truth. The truth for John is not just a cognitive exercise. It's this uh, uh, brain plus heart combination. I want you to live this out. And so John talks all about living in the light and living and loving the way that Jesus did. And then he gets after false teachers. So there's people in the church that are starting to teach and they're starting to draw people away by by stuff that sounds really good and sounds really smart, and, and it appeals to a certain uh, part of their lives that says, yeah, maybe I could be like that, and then I could push other people down. And you have that 
all over the place. If you look to politics uh, in our day, people will say things that appeal to a dark side of us, right? And we, we grab on and we say, yeah. And all the while, we, I think we're thinking, that's not good. I want that. And if he's saying it, it must be good. But it's not. And John's saying, just because they say it, just because it's on the internet, doesn't mean it's good, doesn't mean it's true, and doesn't mean we should follow it. So John says, beloved, do not believe every spirit. And what he's saying there, I think, this spirit is, uh, this is a line of teaching. Somebody's coming in the spirit of the Lord. They're coming as a spokesperson for the Lord. There are a lot of people who will stand up and say, I have a word from God. And he says, don't believe every one of them. Just don't. Don't believe every spirit, but test, test, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. He said, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. There are people who will stand up and say that they have an authoritative word from God. They will say that they are speaking from God. And John says, don't just believe it when they say it. Test it. And I want you to do that to me. I want you to do that to anybody who would stand up in front of Damascus Road and preach. And say, hey, I have a word from God this morning. We're going to test it. If you're going to be that bold, then we're going to look into the Bible and we're going to say, Does it, is it consistent with what the Bible says? And if it's not consistent, you better get after me, right? We as a church need to be discerning. And we can't just be swept away by charisma. John wants right thinking and right living. And so this is very similar to what Paul encountered in Acts 17 in Berea. So there's a group of Bereans uh, living in Berea who get uh, complimented. They get uh, praised because when Paul was giving the gospel, two things are said of them. They were eager to hear it. It is so much fun to talk about God with people who are eager to hear it. Have you ever had that? As opposed to talking about God with somebody who's like, I don't care. I'd rather you stop talking. Okay? It is so much fun when you smile when I'm preaching um, as compared to when you are like really tired and you're just like, why are you done yet? Okay. And John wants that. He says, or he, the, the Bereans are praised because they were eager to hear and because they looked in the scriptures to test it. And they said, is that really true? Let's look and see. And they found it consistent with scripture. And they said, okay, we're going to go with it. He said, um, there's an illustration. If you work in a bank and you're tasked with all this money coming in, you had better be able to spot a counterfeit, right? Because if somebody comes in and says, I'd like to make a $20,000 deposit, and they give you Monopoly money, and you say, sounds good. You just got $20,000 richer. Where'd you get that? That's cool looking money. You're fired, right? You're just, you don't have a job anymore. You had better be able to discern what is true and what is false, what's real and what's counterfeit. And so there are all kinds of counterfeits. There are so many counterfeits that we can't keep up with them. And so to train people, they don't train people in counterfeits. What do they train people in? They train people in the real thing. So they let them touch the money, the real money. And they say, I want you to feel what this feels like. This is printed on a specific kind of paper and counterfeit money is going to feel different. If it passes the feel test, I want you to look at it. I want you to look at it, and I want you to hold it up to a light. 
You ever done this with a $20 bill and there's stuff inside? You're like, how'd they get that in there? Okay. <laughs> if it doesn't have that, you should be alarmed. This is probably not real. And if you're looking at your $20 bill and you're like, I think I'm just going to pull this out because I don't like it. Don't do that. You're going to lose the value, okay? So they, they feel it. They look at it. They look through of it. I mean, some bills have this uh, holographic images now. And new driver's license have this to say, is this legit? And they look at the real thing. They get to know the real thing. So if somebody hands them Monopoly money or something that looks very similar to the real thing but isn't, they can test it. John says, if it feels weird to you, that, is, that should do something to you, to trigger you to say, oh, wait, what are the tests? John says, I don't want you to just go along. I want you to read the fine print. So he has the test in verse 2. He says, by this, this is, this is the test. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So this is John's test. What do they say about Jesus? This is the test for John's church. This is the same test we can run today. In John's church, remember they had the super spiritual, uh, lofty, intellectual type who said, Jesus didn't actually come in the flesh because the flesh is putrid. The flesh is polluted. The flesh is dirty. And God could never take on flesh because God would get dirty. It just can't happen. So Jesus, Jesus was God, but he just seemed to be human. Really good magic trick. We don't know how he did it. He just seemed to be human. And John says, no, 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 no. That doesn't pass our test. Because we touched him. We saw him and we listened to him. Like he was real. And I can stand up here and I can tell you he was real. And he was a person. So there's there this group that said, he's not human. He's divine but he's not human. And John says, that's a problem. We're dealing with a little bit more than that now in our day. And so while the test is the same, what do they say about Jesus? The options have increased. So very quickly, very quickly after John's day, you had a couple other a couple other lines of thought that popped up. And again, I'm visual, so this helps me get out. There was a group of people who said, um, actually, like he was divine, but he wasn't fully divine. And I don't know if you're a history buff. Okay? Any his- anybody like a history buff? You might recognize this guy's name. dude named Arius, said, Jesus was God, but not fully God. The Father is God for all time, and Jesus was the first creation. And Jesus is divine. He comes from the Father, but he's not equal to the Father. So we should worship Jesus, but maybe a little bit less than God. Okay? Yeah, it doesn't pass the sniff test, right? 
They're like, wait a minute, that's not what John said. And he says, good, you're testing this. Okay? So it became known as Arianism. We can see Jesus has divinity. We can see him moving in mighty ways. We can see that he's from God. We just don't think that he was fully God. And so this got battled. People went, people went to battle against this heresy, against this kind of false thought. It said, no, if you cannot deny his full divinity. Jesus was fully divine. And what happens a lot is uh, when we focus on one thing and we try to protect this one thing, what usually happens is the pendulum ends up swinging and we start to err on the other side. And so they started to go to battle and say, Jesus is completely God. He is totally God. He is all God. Not fully human became their rally cry. And for you history guys, a guy named Apollinaris, which is a cool name. I don't want it, but uh, cool. And so his, his line of thinking became known as Apollinarianism. Say that five times. And what you have with Apollinarianism is... Um, Jesus, who was fully divine, mostly human. He was human, except not his mind. His mind was divine. And so Jesus didn't have a human mind. Uh, he didn't think like us. He thought just like God. And what you miss in that, in both of them, is that neither of those really pass the sniff test. They don't pass the touch test. They, there's something wrong because the Bible, the Bible describes Jesus as both. I don't, know how, I don't know how God took this on, how he managed to accomplish it. But the Bible describes Jesus as being both fully divine and fully human. Okay? Fully divine, sorry. Fully divine and fully human. And without that combination, we have less than Jesus. We have less than the Jesus that God has given us. And so we fight back against Arianism by looking into the Bible, by testing it in the Bible. John opens up his gospel by saying, In the beginning, in the beginning was the Word. Jesus was in the beginning. He wasn't created. He was in the beginning. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And Jesus claims it himself. In John 8, 58 and 59, Jesus is wrestling with the Pharisees. And they're like, man, how do you have such authority? He's like, I'm, I'm appealing to you on your father Abraham. You know father Abraham, and I'm more powerful than him. Because before Abraham was, I am. And it's like this weird, like, wait, that you just cheated in English class. That doesn't make any sense. And what he's doing is he's saying, Abraham is limited to time and space. He started here, and I am over the whole thing. There is no past tense for me. There is no future tense. I have always existed. I will always exist. Before Abraham, who you follow, who you exalt, who is a good patriarch, I made him. I existed before him. 
Philippians 2 talks about Jesus being fully God on the throne and yet not equating that as something to be grasped and held onto and how he emptied himself and he came down from his throne. In Colossians, this is a beautiful, beautiful description. Colossians 1, 15 to 20 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. By who? By Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Does that sound like Arianism? No. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Was Jesus God? Yes. Equal with the Father? Yes. Completely, fully God. So Apollinaris said, uh, Arius, you're making a mistake here. We're going to swing the other direction. So Jesus was human, but not fully human. His body was human, but not his mind. And so what... I, the picture that I get, um, I don't think this is necessarily helpful, but you guys know Apollo who holds up the world, like super strong, not related to this, but my mind plays that trick on me. Um, I think of Superman. Superman human? No. Like some weird planet, right? Seems human, super strong. So he passes a lot of tests, but he's not fully human. And in Apollinarianism, you get, a, you get a, a, a Jesus who is like Superman. Of course he's able to do that. He's God. Of course he's able to do that. He's God. And you start asking questions. Well, how did Jesus, how did Jesus resist sin? Because he's God. Well, how, how does he speak on our behalf? Because he's God. Except those answers make little of his humanity. I believe that Jesus was fully God, but I believe that we needed somebody to go through life without sinning, not just because he couldn't because he was God, but because he relied on the Spirit. And in his humanity, he obeyed. And that is the victory. Because it's really easy for God not to sin, right? It's not in his nature. But if Jesus is fully human and he defeats sin. He's able to resist sin by his, um, by his relationship with the Father and his dependence on the Spirit. That opens up doors for us. That opens up doors for us. A fully human Jesus is a Jesus that I can follow. A fully human Jesus is a Jesus that knows what it's like to be me, that feels what it's like to go through stuff. I mean, he had a broken family. Jesus had this weird birth story where his parents are like, um, God was your father. And his friends in school were probably like, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. That's a good one. I'm not sure I'm going to go with you there. Jesus knows what it's like to be taunted and to be ridiculed 
and to struggle. The Bible says the word that John talks about that was in the beginning became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Bible says Jesus had a physical body. He was born. He grew. He got tired. Jesus got tired. He got thirsty. He got hungry. He became physically weak. And he died. Jesus had a real human body after the resurrection. Like they touched his body. In every way, Jesus was human. He had emotions. One author, I love how they reflect. It says, when Jesus heard the centurion's word of faith, Jesus marveled. He says in Matthew 26, 38, that his soul, Jesus saying, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Like that's sad. That's dealing with some stuff. In John eleven thirty three through 35, it says Jesus said he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. He even wept. John 12, 27, Jesus says, my soul is troubled. And this isn't like I'm having trouble in math. Like this is a soul pressing ache. When someone is troubled in a biblical sense, is they're just being squeezed. It is such intense pain. In John 13, 21, he was troubled in spirit again. And the, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews writes that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and with tears. So Jesus had a physical body. Jesus had emotions and he had a human mind. Luke 2.52. And like, see if you can wrap your brain around this. Luke 2.52 said, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus grew intellectually. How do you, how does that happen? He's fully God. God doesn't learn arithmetic. God makes arithmetic. And yet this says Jesus grew intellectually. Both of them are happening. And we can't take away from either one without getting less than Jesus. Jesus is actually asked a question at one point where he says, I don't know. Like, and I don't think he's playing games. I don't think he's like, I don't know, I'd rather not tell you. He says, they're like, when are you coming back? In Mark 13, 32, he says, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not in the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. What? You don't know? You're God. Yeah, but I'm human. And I'm telling you, the Father knows. And I'm leaving that to him. And that is the paradox in Jesus. But we don't want to let go of it just because we can't get our brain around it. He had a human body. He had human emotions. He had a human mind. And he had a human will. Jesus didn't want to die. And you can see it in the garden. All through his life, Jesus would say things like, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of one who sent me. So Jesus got sent, and now he's obeying. And he says, I only do what the Father tells me to do. So I'm not, I'm not running the show. I'm listening to the Father in the same way that you should listen to the Father. 
And he's giving us an example of what it looks like to be obedient. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, Jesus prays and he, he sweats blood. It's so intense. There's such agony. And he says, Father, I don't want to do it. If there's any other way, if there's any other way, because I'm scared right now, if there's any other way that this could happen, do it. But not what I want. Father, it's what you want. If you want this because you want them home, then I'll do it. And I think he was terrified. I think he had the Father with him and the Spirit with him. And he knew he had to do it. And so in the deep sense of him, he wanted to do it. He, gave it, he did it willingly. He laid down his life. It wasn't taken from him. But in his flesh. And he was scared. And he didn't want that. And yet he did it. And so again, in Jesus, you have a picture of, man, this is hard but I can do stuff I don't want to do if it means following God. Do you have stuff like that? Like you don't want to do it. You'd much rather do this. And God says, no, I want you to do this. You're like, I don't want to do that. And Jesus shows us a life lived in the way of saying, I don't want to do it, but I will. Because deep down, it's what I want. Deep down, the very core of who I am, it's what I want. Jesus wrestled, and he won. My pastor growing up said the garden, or the, the battle was won in the garden. Jesus wrestles, and he stands up having prayed, and he's, nah, he's, he's going all the way. And it's not like he wavered, but he asked. Because Jesus was fully human, we have one who knows what it's like to be us in the temptations, in the sorrows, in the weakness. But he also beat the temptation. He's in the unique position to stand in front of the Father and plead our case because he had victory. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, there's only one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. And Jesus won the victory for us. And he stands between us and the Father now, saying, they're mine. I paid for them. And we get welcomed home because of this. Listen to this. A guy named Dave Mathis wrote, Jesus took a human body to save our bodies. He took a human mind to save our minds Without becoming man in his emotions, he could not have saved our emotions. And without taking a human will, he could not save our will. In the words of Gregory of Nazanius, that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. Jesus wanted to save all of me. And so he became just like me. Jesus wanted to save all of you, so he became just like you. Arianism says Jesus is not fully God. And Apollinarianism says he's not fully human. John says that doesn't pass the test. I don't know how it happens, but in Jesus, 
we get Jesus, who is fully God in every way, has always been, will always be created, and sustains everything. He is fully God. And in Jesus, we have fully human, just like me, in all of my weaknesses, except that he never sinned. And how he pleads our case. So the question is, which one do you lean toward? Because we all lean. We all have discomfort in one of these. You start talking about, I don't know, uh, Jesus didn't know an answer in math class? That, that, no, that's not a possibility because he was fully God. That takes away from his divinity. Okay? So to, in order to protect his full divinity, we feel like we have to write out some of his humanity. Or in order to protect his full humanity, we have to write out some of his divinity. Which one is that for you? Do you lean one way or the other and say, I'm comfortable with a human Jesus, I'm not comfortable with a fully divine Jesus, or I'm, I'm really comfortable with a fully divine Jesus, but not, not really fully human. If, if I had to take a stab at it, I would say the church, the church is more susceptible to Apollinarianism because we have protected the divinity of Jesus for so long that we, we can have a hard time grappling with his full humanity. The world, I think, deals more with Arianism. Like, yeah, I have no problem believing that Jesus was from God. I have no problem even maybe saying that Jesus was part divine himself. But to say that he's fully God, I'm not going to go there. Okay? So you have to be honest about where you are and saying, do I diminish Jesus because I'm uncomfortable with it, because I can't get my brain around it? How can I get past that? And have a fully, fully human, fully divine Jesus. If you want a great source um, for digging into this question, who is Jesus? I would highly recommend, and it's not, it's not like technical and it's not even like real uh, history, but there's a fantastic short little book called More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. And he asks the question, who is Jesus? And he starts with this premise that says, Jesus was a person who claimed to be God. The options are limited with what you do with that. And McDowell in the book, and you can read it, says, either he's right or he's wrong. Those are the options, right? If he's right, then we ought to worship him. If he's wrong, then we got a couple options. Either he thought he was right, but he was wrong, in which case he's a lunatic. Like, if I just stand up here and say, I think I'm God, you're like, you're crazy. We're going to go find a different church, okay? So if he thinks he's right and he's wrong, then he's nuts. If he knows he's wrong, he's a liar. And he's the worst one because he told people to follow him straight to hell. So you have Jesus, who's either a Lord a lunatic or a liar, says McDowell. And he's jumping off the shoulders of other people who have gone before that and talked about that. If you're interested in that, man, I, I love that book. I love chewing on that. I would highly, highly, highly recommend that. John wants us to be about right thinking and also right living. So he goes on. He says, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. 
This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. And John says, I don't want you to just know it. I don't want you to say, yeah, I can pass the test on the board. It's good. John says, I want you to confess Jesus. I want you to follow Jesus. I want you to take right thinking, and I want you to live it out. In the New Testament, even demons recognize who Jesus is. They know who he is. But their allegiance doesn't change. Their allegiance doesn't change. So John isn't just interested in knowledge. More than that, he's not interested in simply believing in your head or even in your heart. He wants your allegiance to change. He wants you to say it, to talk about it, to live it. That's what it says when he says, if, if a spirit doesn't confess Jesus, if it doesn't say, I follow Jesus, don't, don't follow that. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that's why I love baptism. I love, I love baptism. And I will be the first one to stand up here and say, I don't believe baptism gets you extra credit to heaven. I don't believe that baptism saves you. But I do believe that When you give your life to Jesus and when you follow him, that is not intended to be a private faith. That is intended to be a faith that is lived out in the context of community. And baptism is an opportunity to declare that which has already changed inside. Jesus saved me and I have to tell it. I have to tell everybody. And I want to invite my friends and I want to invite my family and I want to do it in front of the church. And I want to say, I'm I'm all in, literally. The old life is gone. Jesus saved me and I'm all in. And I have a new life in Christ. I love baptism. When you see the life in people. Baptism answers the question, what do you say about Jesus? In baptism, you get asked the questions, Do you believe, do you trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins? Not by how good you are, not some other way, not to put Jesus in your pocket or on a keychain among other things that could be good for you, like a a rabbit foot or something. Like, I'm just going to add Jesus because it can't hurt. Baptism says, do you believe in Jesus and Jesus alone? I'm all in on Jesus and he forgave me. And then, is it your intention to follow him every day for the rest of your life? To live out this new life that he has given you? To share it with other people? To not be ashamed? Are you coming into the community so you can live in fellowship with God and with us? That's the power of baptism. And so I I just would ask you the question, is that you? Are you at a point in your life, you say, I've never been baptized. Or they sprinkled some stuff on me when I was a baby. I didn't have a say in it. But now I want to follow Jesus. Now I want what Jesus has. I would love to talk with you about that. Turn to your neighbor and say, I, would, I want to talk about that, if that's you. I, want to, I, I would love to know more about getting baptized. But we have an opportunity coming up at Easter, which would be such, such a sweet, sweet celebration where we celebrate a Jesus that couldn't 
couldn't be bound by death and offers new life. And we see people rising in that new life. What a celebration that could be. Is that you? Do you want to shout that? John says in verse four, little children, he says, you are from God. You have overcome them. So you don't have to listen to them. You've overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of anger. And John goes back to the two ways of thinking. There's the way of the world that sounds good and it appeals to our depravity. It, it appeals to that sinful part of us that just wants to grow and climb and achieve and push other people down along the way. John says, the way of the world sounds good. It makes much of ourselves, and it makes little of Jesus. You deserve this. Climb, achieve, acquire, push people away, build walls to keep people out, distance yourself. This is life on the ladder. This is life climbing the ladder of success. And John would present in the dichotomy of these images. He would present a different way. He says, I don't want you to climb the ladder. I want you to get down at the foot of the cross. I want you to live a life of the cross that says, I'm going to give my life. I'm going to love people. I'm going to serve people. I'm going to follow Jesus because that's what Jesus did. I'm going to live that kind of life. 1 Corinthians 8.1 says, knowledge puffs up. And love builds up. I don't want to just pursue a life that uh, makes me more famous. I want to pursue a life that builds people up along the way. John says you don't have to play by the world's rules. God is greater. God has a greater way. If it sounds like it's all about you, remember that will be fun for a short while, and then it will be done. It will not last. If you want a life that will last, the only way you can have that is to build it on Jesus. This is the difference between truth and error. John says, I want you to live in the light. I want you to live a life of love. And to live in the light is to be known and to be loved. John says, I want you to be known and to be loved. And in Jesus, we have one who knit us together in our mother's womb, who knows every intricate detail and took great care. He knows us intimately, and he loves us unashamedly. We trust Jesus, and then we follow him to love others. Be known Beloved, trust Jesus, follow him, love. Let's pray. Father, you are bigger. You are bigger than we can wrap our minds around. I'm so thankful that
that you are powerful enough to make us, that you are loving enough to rescue us. I thank you that you, Jesus, are just like us, that you know what it's like to struggle, that you know what it's like to have pain, to have people betray you. And I'm so thankful that you didn't fail, that you were able to stand up to sin and say, you don't get to win. Jesus, you were just like us, and yet you won and you passed that victory to us. Jesus, you are bigger than us, and yet we declare, we believe that you are fully human. We believe that you are fully God, that you are one who is to be worshiped and one who is to be followed. May that be true for our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.